Good morning, everyone. Welcome to you all this day. I'm here at the request of our pastor, Evan, and uh, he was here earlier this morning, but he's gone over to Life House, and uh, I am going to share with you a message this morning, which we hope to climax really next Sunday as we will close our service with an invitation for you to submit yourself to the entire sanctifying grace of God. I have to believe whenever I stand behind the sacred desk that God has uh, chosen to bring the people in that need to hear it. I can't tell you the numbers of times in my life I've had people come up to me and say after service, I wish so-and-so was here. I also heard a good pastor one time, not myself, say, God never gave him a message for empty pews. I have to believe that's true, that the right people are here this morning. I heard a good story this last week that kind of reminded me of my situation. I'm here, I don't know who most of you are or where you come from or your situation, but I was told of a story of a gentleman who pulled up very quickly in front of a pharmacy, quickly jumped out of his car, ran into the pharmacy and saw no one around, but he heard some skimmering or scuttering behind the desk and he realized the pharmacist must be down there. So he tapped very quickly on the desk and said, do you have anything for the hiccups? And the man behind the desk came up very quickly and smacked him right across the face like to knock him silly. And he shook himself a little bit and he looked over and the fellow was smiling from ear to ear. He said, you don't have the hiccups anymore, do you? He said, no, I never do, but my wife out in the car does. I hope the wife's not out in the car and the person who needs to hear this message is not out in the car. I begin with this basis. And what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is a compilation of the sayings of Jesus and something that he may or may not have delivered all of it at the same time, but we know the context of it is that he delivered this as teachings as to how he wanted people to live. And in the book that we will refer to as the book of Matthew, the sixth chapter, he gave some references about how he wants us to live and how we are to relate to the things of this world, most particularly the things that we have, our possessions. And the scripture teaches us that he said such things to them that you cannot uh, divide your loyalties. He said such things as where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In the 24th verse of the 6th chapter of Matthew, he simply put forth this tremendous saying that you cannot serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will cling to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and the old King James, and in the NKJV as well it says mammon. It could be translated as riches. You can't serve both of them. A little later in the same passage of scripture, he used this phrase, which I think many of us have memorized. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then this phrase was put in there that I'm sure Jesus said, and all these things will be added unto you. My topic this morning is dying that we might live. But dying is never a pleasant topic for a preacher to have, and I know that's not something I can excite you about this morning unless I put it in context. Therefore, I invite your attention, please, with me to Galatians, the second chapter. Let me give you a few background definitions. What is sin? Sin is the willfully doing that which is not God's will. Now, I could phrase it a different way. Sin is the willful transgression of God's will. 
But that's what it literally is. It's knowing what God wants you to do and doing anything other than that. There are sins of omission as well as sins of commission. As a baby Christian, a new Christian, or even as a non-believer, we become very quickly acclimated to the concept of what sins of commission are. You can't do certain things. You can't hit people. You can't lie on people. You can't do these kinds of things. But as you grow in Christ and you become a follower of Christ, something very, very spiritual begins to happen in your life. You become aware of the things you should be doing that you're not doing. And they then become conviction to your heart just as much so as if you were to speak badly of someone or hit someone or do some other transgression that would be a sin of commission. And when you know God's will and do not do it, if God speaks to you and says, you need to call so-and-so on the phone and encourage them today, and you don't do that, when you're a brand new Christian or non-Christian, it's so who cares? Forget about it. It makes no difference. But as you grow in Christ, all of a sudden you find that you can't sleep well at night if you didn't do that. If God told you to do something and you didn't do it all day long, you get ready to go to bed tonight and all of a sudden that's the only thing on your mind and you begin to realize, what's what am I going to do? How am I going to get past this? And somehow or another begins to come into your spirit. I need to repent. That was a sin against God. That's a sin of omission. What is righteousness? Righteousness is doing and being the known will of God. It is righteousness that we have, that we have received. We are the righteousness of God in Christ, the scripture says. But I'm going to presume this morning this one thing. Every single one of us in here in this building at one time or another have been hurt by somebody that did something to us, said something about us, shunned us or whatever. This church today would not be able to contain the people. I guarantee you, if we could get the people in here who have left church in the last 15 years in this community or 10 years in this community because they got their feelings hurt. Have you ever had your feelings hurt? Well, of course you have. What did you do about it? Sometimes nothing. Sometimes it just stirred up within us. It stayed in there and festered until someday maybe it comes out and blows up all over everyone. If you are in a marriage today, I'm quite confident that many of you know exactly what I'm speaking about. And please do not say amen because that would be embarrassing for your spouse. But in the second chapter of Galatians, we have an extremely, uh, I think, compelling story that some of you will be able to relate to very personally. Saul or as he later became known as Paul from the town of Tarsus, a tent maker by trade, a Pharisee and Jew by religion, had been converted dramatically on the Damascus Road. The story is told in the book of Acts, where as he walked along, his endeavor, his goal as a Pharisee, and as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as he would say, or a leader, his goal was to find the Christians and root them out wherever he could. He had papers given to him that gave him legal responsibility and privilege to arrest Christians and do whatever the law would allow him to do no matter where he was at. The scripture tells us that on that wonderful day on the Damascus Road, he was stopped by the Holy Spirit and a light shone to him that was so bright it blinded him. Others saw the light but did not hear the voice. But he heard the voice as Jesus Christ called out to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against me? He was dramatically converted, went on into Damascus, and several days later received the sanctifying grace of God. As a result of that, he began to not only not persecute Christians, he became an ambassador for Jesus Christ. He later chose, self-imposed the title as an apostle. 
An apostle in the beginning of the church was one who spent time personally with Jesus and was chosen by Jesus to carry out a ministry. A disciple could have been the same. However, there were many followers and our disciples are learners from Jesus, but only a few were sent. And Paul said, I was one of those. And by his own design and God's calling, he became what he described as the apostle to the Gentiles. What an irony that he would become an apostle to the Gentiles when he was so Jewish. Educated by Gamaliel. Educated in the things of Judaism that only an astute priest in many instances would have knowledge of. This man spoke several languages. This man was a philosopher. This man was a theologian. This man was someone of great power and authority. And he became a follower of Christ and then began to minister to the Gentiles. The scripture tells us that he went on several, we now call them three in number. That's only one of our little man-made things to help remember the ministry of Paul. That he went on three missionary journeys, many of them throughout Turkey and today's Lebanon and Syria and those areas. And there he carried the good news of Christ. But he did not primarily minister to the Jews, though he did not exclude them. Many times he would go to the Jewish synagogue to minister. But the Gentiles, for some unexplicable reason, were drawn to him. And as time passed, many got converted. We don't know whether there was 10 or 100, but it was probably several hundred, if not several thousand, were converted. And he formed churches wherever he tended to go. He left a church. And this particular letter is written to the churches that are in Galatia. And there are several of them mentioned in the New Testament. But as time passed, word began to trickle back down to him and to his followers that they were not real followers of Jesus Christ. That Paul was not a real apostle of Jesus Christ. That he was an apostate. That he was teaching false doctrine. That he was working against the cause of Christ. Paul became so alarmed that eventually he decided to take with him Barnabas and Titus and make his way to Jerusalem. And there he was going to speak to these followers of Christ, uh, these bigwigs in the church, James, the brother of Jesus, Petros or Peter or Cephas, the leader of the church, and several others. He made his way there and he said he was kind of surprised because when he got to Jerusalem, he found a welcoming group. And Titus who came with him was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. Unlike Barnabas who was Jewish, he was accepted because he was Jewish. Because you see, in the beginning of the church, the church was almost totally Jewish. And Paul was ruining that. He was ruining the purity of the church. He was Hellenizing the church. And I don't mean hell is in not going to heaven. I mean Grecianize them. They were becoming Greeks and the church that existed in the form of Jews, they didn't like that. They thought this was exclusively for the Jews, but no, it wasn't. So here was Paul ministering to Gentiles. And as he came back to Jerusalem, they welcomed him. And he explained to them what was going on. And he told them how people were being converted. And some of them under the power of the Holy Spirit was, were literally falling out under the power of God. And how some had been healed. And on and on he went. And the scripture says in a very brief time, they extended the right hand of fellowship with him. And they commended him. And they said, from now on, you can be the minister to the Gentiles. And Peter, the rest of us here, or Cephas as he was called, will be the ministers to the Jews. And he left with great jubilation. Then he went back to Galatia. And after he got there, I think his feelings were hurt unbelievably. Because the text tells us that shortly after he got there, some people came from James, the brother of Jesus, and began to spread the same thing that he thought he'd just straightened out in Jerusalem. 
And on top of that, it wasn't too long before here comes the leaders of the church, at least some of them. And if you're there with me, go with me to the second chapter. I'd like to begin with the 11th verse. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Are you there in the past? This is, this is you and I sometimes. You ever get your feelings hurt? Listen to what happened. For before certain men came from James, who was James, the brother of Jesus, where did he meet him up at? Up in Jerusalem. When he told him, this is what I'm doing. And James said, well, it looks good and sounds good to me. You're fine. You go minister to the Gentiles. And then James turns around after this and sends people back down to Antioch or up to Antioch and into the area of Galatia to say to them, hey, you're not doing what we want you to do. And Paul, I know, was ticked. I mean, if you know what ticked means, would you just raise your hand? I don't want to. He was mad. He was irritated. Why? He was going to tell you why. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself from the Gentiles, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played. You have your Bibles? What's the word there? The hypocrite. How many hate hypocrites? We hate hypocrites. Profess one thing, live another. Shoot your mouth off about one thing and live another way. Always condemning some people while you're living in sin. Paul was dealing with what he thought was hypocrites. Do you think of James, the brother of Jesus, and the first thing that comes to your mind was, hey, he's a hypocrite. But that's what the scripture says. Now listen to what Paul goes on and says. He's the author of this. And he says, so that even Barnabas, who was Barnabas? Barnabas was, was Paul's right-hand man. He was the one that he had he ministered with. And here he was in Antioch. And all of a sudden now, he doesn't want to hang around the Gentiles. Why? Because of peer pressure. Because James and, had sent some representatives. Because Peter shows up on the scene. But when I saw that they were not straightforward, don't you like the way he calls you a hypocrite? Not straightforward. I guess that means they were crooked. They were dishonest. They were hypocritical from Paul's perspective. About the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before all of them, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners like the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ, that we might be justified in faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And that's the nutshell of the gospel. And he simply says to Peter, how come you being a Jew come here and tell these Gentiles they have to keep the law? When you know as well as I know, and James knows back in Jerusalem, we all know the only way we're justified is by faith in Jesus Christ. That was a very kind, diplomatic, political way of saying, you low-livered hypocrite, you deceitful liar. How dare you come here and tell these people from Antioch they have to live by the law when you don't do it. You've never done it. You couldn't do it. James didn't do it. And now we've all come into faith with Jesus Christ and we are justified by faith in Christ. And you come up here to tell my people because they're Gentiles, they're not acceptable and they have to be circumcised. I I, I won't go too much further other than to say I am absolutely positive Peter offended Paul. Have you ever been offended? You ever wonder what the solution is? Ever figure, try to figure, what am I going to do? Am I going to retaliate? Well, Paul didn't come become uh, just a, a, a withering vine. He spoke forthright and he, he did it to his face. He confronted him. 
But that doesn't mean it was all done with. And then he says, but if while we were, we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found to be sinners. Are we saying in that, that we are following a Christ who is a minister of sin? That's not true, or certainly not. For if I build again on those things which I destroy, I make myself a transgressor. Did you hear that? Let me just repeat it for you. If I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Have you been to the place in your Christian life where something happened and you felt something? You began to experience something. You say, man, I thought I laid that on the altar. I thought I'd let Christ take that. Have you ever had fear come upon you when you say, I thought, I, I thought I'd done that? Have you ever had resentment or hurt come back and your thought is, I don't like to feel this way. I thought it was all on the altar. This is what Paul is struggling with. I, I don't want to get, I don't want to be what I used to be. I don't want to go back to that, that man who was stopped on the Damascus Road. I don't want to be that one who's constantly mad. I don't want to be that one that's just to confront people all the time. He's getting to something very important. And he says, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I would like to believe, and I can because I'm up here, that all of us here at one time or another have tried to die to self. We have said in only the way we know how, Lord God, I want you to be my Lord. We've also come up with little cliches that are very true, but sometimes don't ring through our entire being. I, I want Jesus Christ to be Lord of all. Because if he's not Lord of everything, he's not Lord of anything. I don't want him only to be my Savior. I want him to be my Lord. I don't only want him to be my Savior. I want him to be my sanctifier. I want to do what Christ would have. I want to seek first God's kingdom, and I want to seek his righteousness. But sometimes we heard that last phrase louder, so that all these things will come to me. Sometimes we realize along the way of life that we bought a false theology. If I follow Christ, everything will go wonderful and fine. Unfortunately today, my, my friends, I, I hate to remind you, but there are people on television and radio preaching that heresy. Oh, if you're a Christian, you'll never have a problem. You serve God, you'll be blessed. You send me money, I'll send you a cloth. You will never have a problem. Your kids will all be wonderful. My goodness, your, your children won't even need to be potty trained. They'll be born that way if you listen to them sometimes. <laughs> They'll promise you, oh, and you'll never get sick. You'll never get sick. There are people around in our world today that tell their people regularly, you, you, become, you come committed to this church and you believe in God and you believe by faith that God can, and you get sick, God will heal you. Then when you don't get healed, they come along and say, well, you don't have enough faith. Sometimes they say, you haven't given us enough money. Don't you buy that. You say, well, I thought they were Christian people. I'm not here to judge them, but I'm here to tell you, sickness comes upon God's people as well. Tragedy becomes upon God's people as well. People will say things to you they shouldn't say, and sometimes they are Christian people. They profess to be, and, and you and I don't want to judge them. They are, but they said things that were not true about you. And you have to make a decision. And then I come to the passage of Scripture that if I had my way, I'd cut it out of the Bible. I'd like to take a pen, I got one somewhere, and I'd like to go to the book, and I'd like to wipe this verse out because I just don't like it. The 20th verse, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. I don't like that verse of Scripture. I don't know about some of you, but I guess, have you noticed how frequently you resurrect from the dead? Are you aware of how easy it is for the old man within you to come right back up to the surface? You thought you had done away with that, that, that jealousy, that anger, whatever it is in your life, and you're a Christian, you're trying to serve God, you read your Bible, you pray, you come to church, my goodness, you even tithe, and you thought, man, I thought I'd put that all behind. And lo and behold, one day it rises right up. I think, my friends, without my mind, no question, that's what happened in Paul's life. Peter came in and ruined, tried to ruin his life. Came in and tried to ruin his ministry. Told everybody around him, you have to be a Jew. And Paul sat there thinking, when we came up to Jerusalem, you, you never said a thing to Titus about being circumcised. You never said a thing to any of us about keeping the law. No, you were all wonderful, loving, kind, sweet, handshaking, hugging. Oh, it was so great to be with the family of God. And now you send somebody down here to these new babes in Christ and try to tell them they keep the law. You hypocrite. You don't keep the law yourself. You don't live that way yourself. You come here and tell my people that I'm teaching them wrong. And I think when he went to bed at night, Paul thought, I'm, I'm dead to myself. I remember the day I went to Christ and crawled up on that cross and said, crucify him. You say, where do you see that in Scripture? When he was back in Damascus and he'd already met Christ on the road. He'd already called him Lord. He'd already surrendered his life to him. But when he came back to Damascus, the Holy Spirit came upon him and sanctified him wholly, sanctified him completely. And I think Paul thought to himself and said, I thought I'd done all of that. I am dead. I have been crucified with Christ. In the life that I live, I no longer live in myself, but I live Christ through me. And the scripture says, Christ in you and I, the hope of glory. Oh, not unlike some of you, a couple of times in my life, I've had people hurt my feelings. Even fat, ugly preachers sometimes get their feelings hurt. And sometimes people, I'm sure, say things about you you don't like. Sometimes they say them behind your back. But have you ever made note of how many people like to come and tell you what somebody else told them? A little bit of gossip. Oh, you know what I heard? Oh, you know, you don't want to trust that person. Hmm. I wouldn't be surprised whenever it comes. It might be this week, this day, or next year, or five years. One day I'm going to lay in a casket. And I have some folks here that I know, but I'll. I'll pick on Bill over here, Bill, because I like to pick on you. Bill might come to my funeral. And he'll, he'll sit in front of my casket. And he'll say things like, you know, he probably was the worst preacher I've ever heard. <laughs> he was definitely the ugliest preacher I've ever heard. And he thought he knew something about building, but I worked with him. He'd done as a post. And he might run on and on and on. But you know what? Won't bother me. Because I'm dead. You and I today, if we're Christians, we're dead to self. We're dead to pride. We're dead to defending ourselves. And Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. All of us like to win the loss, but some of us don't like to pay the cost. You see, dead men don't respond. 
Dead women don't get mad, don't get jealous. They don't react, they don't respond, they're dead. Now I'm not trying to put you in the concept that Paul was completely oblivious to what happened. He had responded. But I think after he responded, he had to remind himself. Therefore, he reminded the churches in Galatia, I've been crucified with Christ. I am dead. Great friend of mine one time said, I try to live my life like I'm a dead man on furlough. That really helped me. Dead man on furlough. Don't have any rights. Don't have any responsibilities. I knew a gentleman one time that came to a church meeting, a business meeting. That's where you normally have the most fun in church, business meetings. This particular instance, this was a prominent gentleman in the community who owned a store who happened to sell paint and boatloads of it. And he knew that the church had to be repainted and a lot of work done around the church. He came to the meeting one night. I still remember it, though I was a young pastor at that time, 40, 50 years ago almost. And in the meeting that evening, the leaders of the church talked about and decided, I think there were 21 exterior doors in that church. I do not know why they did it like that, but they did. And they all needed to be painted. And the metal around them needed to be painted. Everything needed to be done. Big task. And that night, the leadership of the church voted and decided that they were not going to paint any of those doors. Well, that didn't seem to be a big thing to me, but they were one by one as money became available. They instead, instead of having those old doors, they were coming around, they were going to replace them with brand new doors, which they would not have to paint. But sitting around the table, there were maybe eight or ten of us that night. This gentleman who owned the store from whom we purchased all of our paint, he stood up and he hit his hand on the desk. And forgive me for being literal, but he said, I'm glad to know this church has got so much damn money. I'm finished here. Stomped out of the room, left and went home. Now, I've been in some business meetings, folks, and I had been in some at that time that got pretty, but I never heard, I never heard a man cuss in church before. I don't know that I have since. So uh, after the meeting was over, I went to his house, knocked on his door. His wife was our treasure, double whammy. And he came to the door, very kind. I'm sure he's dead now, been many years ago. And he looked at me and he said, Pastor, come in. He said, oh. he said I was just mad. He said, I'm, I, I'm just mad. He said, you don't have to worry. Uh, my wife and I are not going to leave the church. He said, I, I, I'll be back Sunday morning. I know you came over here. You're worried about that, but I'm not going to leave the church. And I looked at him. I said his name. I said, Pete, I didn't come over here to ask you not to leave the church. Well, oh, what do you do? I said, I want your resignation. I want you to put on a piece of paper tonight that you resign from the membership of this church. I will not have a board member sit on this church board who confesses and professes to be a born-again, sanctified Christian who loses their temper and cusses like a sailor in the meeting. And you know what he did? He got mad and cussed again. I don't know that he even understood what it means to be crucified with Christ. He possibly didn't care. His wife was so upset with him. I mean, crucifixion on a cross would have probably been a leisurely procedure to what she would have done to him that night if she could have. You're not answerable to your wife, to your husband, to your brother, sister, your mother, or even my dear brother, Pastor Evan. You are answerable to God and so am I. And you've had your feelings hurt. What have you done with it? Are you festering over it? 
or have you laid it on the altar? Being sanctified means you willingly stand up and say, I want to die. I want to die. A little song I heard said, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, to hold his hand and to walk this narrow way. There is no peace, there is no joy, there is no thrill like walking in his will. For me to live is Jesus Christ and to die is gain. All of that from Paul's little trite saying, I have been crucified with Christ. But you see, we miss it if we don't understand a little bit what I tried to tell you this morning Paul had just come through. To have his complete life turned topsy-turvy. To have ambassadors come from Jerusalem. To have Peter, the one who was going to be a come, though he didn't know it at the time, the foundational founder of the Catholic Church, to come to him and play the hypocrite and say, you have to be circumcised if you're a Gentile male. You have to keep the law if you're going to be a Christian. Everything that Paul had said, he came in and contradicted. He made Paul out to be a liar, a deceitful person. He made him out to be anything but the truth. And Paul called him on it, but he was still hurt. And I think he was resentful. And I wouldn't be surprised by that he considered what he could do to get back. I wouldn't be surprised you think maybe he thought, I'm going to go back down to Jerusalem. Them old boys need another visit. I got to straighten them out. And this time I'm going to take 10 with me. Not just one, but 10. And I'm going to take them all down there. And we're going to challenge them. We're going to say, this is how we live. This is what we do. This is how we win people to Christ. This is what we give to the poor. This is what we do for the sick. What do you do? I'm going to straighten them out, Bubba. But then the Spirit came to him. He said, Paul, I thought you were dead. Who's this I see? Then he realized, and he said, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I'm alive, but I'm not living. Christ is living through me. And the life which I now live, I live to the glory of God. This is what it means to be sanctified as best I can understand it. And I don't think you get that when you get saved. I'm positive I didn't. I don't know of anybody else that I've ever met that did. Many of you that are here this morning have an understanding, if not all of us, of marriage. I don't know how many weddings I've done in my life, but quite a few. Most of them have made it. I often, though, find myself wondering, how much of what they're getting into do they realize when they stand at the altar? I go through premarital counseling with them. I've heard a lot of good stuff. I remember the couple I asked one day, just as I do many times, I I asked the young lady, I said, tell me, is there any circumstance under which you can think of that you would think about leaving your husband? And I had one lady tell me one time, she said, well, I don't know know that I'd even leave him if he cheated on me, but I'd know I'd leave him if I found he ever abused our children. And I had several women that said, I I think I'd leave him if I found that he had been cheating on me. And this woman, without even smiling, she said, well, pastor, she said, he knows if I come home two days in a row and there's no hot water in the house, I'm leaving him. And I thought, okay, you're kidding. He said, oh, no, she's not kidding. He said, she loves her hot baths every day. And I know if I didn't have hot water in the house two days in a row, she'd leave me. I want to say, are you, you, I, I almost didn't do the service. 
what do they expect when they come into marriage? Well, I don't know, but I can tell you this, without exception, they won't know much about it for about a year, two, three, how long you think? 28 years. And then down through the time, people say things that at, when people that are young, they hear it, they think, oh, that's just bull. And they look at each other, they look and say, you know what? I love them more today than I did the day I married them. And they say, not possible. Yes, it is. Because they've come to that new place. They've arrived at that place that though they got their feelings hurt, and they said something. You see, when you're dating, you don't do too much of that. You don't tell everybody what you think, particularly not the one you want to marry. And we joke about marriage all the time, but people who are really deeply in love and married and stay that way for years and years and years, they have an insight into sanctification I think that the rest of the world doesn't have a clue about because they know what it is to go to that next level and realize, man, nothing she, she, he's going to say to me is going to make me leave because I love him. I know I'm not going to tell him that because I'm not going to make myself that vulnerable. But I've, I've gone to a different level. When I became a Christian at the age of 16, I really truly think now as I look back, I wanted fire insurance. I didn't want to go to hell. And good Lord in heaven knew I deserved it. Like some of you, I had done a lot of mean, common things. Cussed like a sailor. Got in so many fights. Uh, my claim to fame when I was in, the, I think, the eighth grade, I got kicked out of school 30 days for 30 different fights during the course of the year. I kicked out all. I got kicked out so many times. The principal, the assistant principal, saw me coming. He said, "Come on down here, Diggs." He said, "But I'm not going to let you go home." And I went off. And I knew. He said, "I'm not going to suspend you another day because if I do, you have to come back another year. You can't miss but thirty days." Oh, I, I knew when I got saved. All I wanted was fire insurance. It took a while till I realized I really was saved, but I hadn't totally committed to Jesus Christ. I remember going down on the boardwalk in Virginia Beach. If you've ever visited there, as a a young preacher, 18 years of age. And I went down there with a group of people several nights a week and we'd witness on the boardwalk to whomever would come to Virginia Beach and pass out tracks. And I want to tell you, they, we had some unusually weird people that come through Virginia Beach on a regular basis during the summertime. Mean, big, bulky. And I went up there and I found out very quickly I was scared to death. I mean, I never was big, but I was scared to death of those people. I thought, man, these people will kill you if you say anything. And we had a gentleman with me, I'll never forget, Tom Edmondson, long time since gone to the Lord. He got converted in his late life, probably in his mid-60s. He was a bum and a drunk and an alcoholic and you name it. But he got wondrously converted. And he'd go down on the boardwalk and he'd walk up to those people, shove his glasses. Do you know Jesus? I'm thinking, hey, Tom, come on, baby, take it soft and be a little bit easier with them. Say something else. Oh, you know Jesus. You're going to hell if you don't. He was not diplomatic. He'd pass them a track. On a regular basis, he'd win one, two, or three every night on the boardwalk. And I was sitting there scared to death. And I finally asked him one day, Tom, how did you get so bold? Oh, he said, Brother Dale. He said, I was scared to death even after I got saved until I asked the Holy Spirit to come in and fill me completely and sanctify me wholly. You may not think it's real, you may not think it's real that you can love somebody with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but there are so many women in this room today who love their spouse that way. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. We say, oh, yeah, but the divorce rate's going through the ceiling. No, it really isn't as much as people like to make you believe. According to the studies I'm reading to now, somewhere in the vicinity of 75 to 80% of the people who were married the first time in the church who profess to be born-again Christians stay married the rest of their life. But there are many other people that are getting married two, three, and four, and five times, and that brings the divorce rate down. 
Don't knock it till you've tried it. And do not rule out the possibility that the God of the universe who sent his son to die on a cross sinlessly for your sins and for mine can not only save your soul from hell, but can purify you by the infilling of the Holy Spirit to the place that you die to self and you are crucified with Christ and you live for his glory and honor. But it is a decision you have to make. Sometimes we're shy about certain things in life. Some few of you probably that are here this morning, if you look, think hard, 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 way, way back, can remember that time when you thought, man, I'd like to go out with that person, but you did not have the courage to ask them. Most of us were diplomatic enough, we'd go to their friend. Don't ask me why, just seems easier. Hey, would you see if so-and-so is interested in going out with me? That day one time comes, though, and you finally got up enough courage to walk up to them and said, hey, would you like to, whatever it was. You can stay back for 40 years if you want to and look at them from a distance and love them all you want to and want to be with them all you want to. But if you don't get to the place that you come and say, would you go out with me? You'll never have a date. The Holy Spirit, the Scripture says in the book of Revelation, stands at the door and knocks. But you've got to open the door. I have had it described to me that the door to salvation only has a doorknob on the outside. And you've got to open it. And when you open it, You'll meet Jesus. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. We're burdened souls on this earth. We carry a lot of weight. Sometimes we can't hardly bear it anymore. And we just have to give it to Jesus. I, I, I apologize for the you. Have you heard the phrase Indian giver? Do you know, does that mean, I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend anybody, but an Indian giver when I was a boy meant you'd give something, take it back. Am I correct at that point? I have found in my spiritual life I am an Indian giver. I give it to God, about the next 24 hours I take it back. I really don't want it, but I take it back anyway. I give him something that I find myself thinking about it. I'm often bothered by that concept that we shouldn't worry and I worry about stuff and when I don't worry about stuff I'm worried about what I'm missing it's my nature aren't you glad that he's a burden bearer I'm glad this morning to say to you that our Lord Jesus Christ God incarnate is not only the one who died on the cross but he promised us and he prayed for us and he said I pray to the father that you will sanctify them by your word or truth he prayed for you and I to be sanctified. He told us to submit our whole body, soul, mind, and strength. He told us to seek what is His good and acceptable and perfect will. But then somebody will come along and say, do you really believe that it's possible? Can you be perfect? Well, the Word of God says you can be. You have to understand that means that you can be perfect in your spiritual life. You're not going to have a perfect body, but one day you'll have one. But you have available to you, as I do to me, that ability to totally surrender to Jesus Christ, crawl up on the cross, put your arms stretched out, and say, nail me to the cross. I'll say one final thing, and my time is up. Crucifixion is a process. Do you remember, please do with me for a moment, on that fateful Friday, about 1900 and 
70 years ago now. They nailed him to the cross in the morning. He was crucified. But they came back later to find out was he dead. Two of them weren't. So they broke their legs so that they could no longer push up to be able to expel the carbon dioxide. And then they died. But when they got to Jesus, he had already died. Some few of us this morning may have crawled up on the cross, but we've not had our legs broken yet. And we're still breathing in that carnality, that sinfulness, that disobedience, that pride that says, I'm somebody. And we need to have our legs broken on the cross and die. We're in the process. We have been crucified, but we have not died to self. And it's a decision as to whether or not you want to. Do you want to die to self? You're tired of that pride, that anger, that me? It's a terrible thing. I'm like some of you men that are here. I'm sorry, ladies, I can't relate to you. I have noticed as I've gotten older, and God knows I've gotten a lot older, when I was young, let me just ask a question. Just see if me. How many of you fellows that are here played sports when you were younger? Would you just help me by raising any of you played sports? And how many of you thought you were fairly good? I was fairly good. But since I've gotten older, I have become better. What I did when I was young, I find now when I think about it and I'm tempted to tell other people, it's a lot better than it was when I was young. I tend to like to think people, make people think I was so good. I like to exaggerate. I, f- I realized about 10 years ago, exaggeration is a Christian word for lying. Lying. The truth is, I never played pro baseball. I played baseball, and I was pretty good in some people's minds, and I got an offer to come to a pro team, but I never played pro baseball. But if I'm not careful, I'll leave people thinking I did. And I batted pretty good. I didn't bat five, six, seven hundred. I batted over four hundred. But I like to exaggerate. And if that's true of my mediocre baseball career, you wait till I tell you about my football days. <laughs> Have you been lying to yourself? Maybe lying to a few other people. Wanting them to believe that you really are a Christian. That you really are committed. There was a gentleman several years ago who's since passed away. He was great in finances. Some of you have probably heard of Larry Burkett. Larry Burkett made this statement one time, and I know it's true. He said, if someone tells me they're a committed Christian, he said, let me have their checkbook for five minutes, and I'll tell you whether they're lying or not. I heard another person say that we ought to stop letting people take their billfold out of their pocket when they go to be baptized because we still love our money. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but when you look at me, it's not me. It's Christ living through me. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, minister to me and to others who are here this morning how we might allow you to truly help us to die to self.
We want to be crucified with you. Also, Lord God, I would ask you to help us this morning. We need your help to stay dead. We have a terrible propensity to like to resurrect from the dead. We don't want to do that. We want to stay dead to self that we might truly be alive to you. For Father God, I do believe, even as the title this morning says, that we die to self that we might truly live for you. May your spirit abide with and fill those who are willing in this room. May you be personified in their lives. May others, when they see them, know that they're seeing something different, for they recognize Jesus Christ. Lord, the greatest joy we have is to try to show you to others. Help us in that task, we pray. And we promise we will do our best to be faithful, to give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. For you truly deserve it. And we ask it in your name. Amen.